Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garday. It's Thursday, November 30th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. AbbVie is spending $10 billion on a cancer-focused company that spent four decades on the path to its first FDA approval. We'll discuss what the deal means for biotech in 2023 and for a burgeoning area in oncology. We'll also talk about the latest news in the life sciences, including some safety concerns for CAR-T cancer treatment, the slumping industry job market, and a few curious explanations for clinical failures. All that after a word from our sponsor. With a focus on genetics and genomic research, Regeneron Genetics Center is revolutionizing the industry with new discoveries. Today, I'm joined by Tim Thornton, Senior Director of Statistical Genetics at RGC, to learn more about the future of genome sequencing and a white paper on the yield of genetic association signals from genomes, exomes, and imputation. We really wanted to understand what are the implications for these different approaches? How does it impact your ability to discover new genetic signals? Tim, where can listeners learn more about Regeneron Genetics Center? The best place is Regeneron.com. Welcome back, guys. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was quiet this year. How was yours, Adam? It was good. I ate a lot of stuffing, which was delicious. I made a nice cake which was delicious. So uh, all in, it was a good Thanksgiving. Damien, how was your Thanksgiving? It was both quiet uh, and generally delicious. I have no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, o- it's always nice when we can uh, record this podcast. And as you guys know, we record this podcast on Thursday morning. Uh, and uh, we just got uh, finished, or Damien just got finished writing a story about AbbVie's $10 million acquisition of Immunogen. It's a, it's a takeout Thursday. Damien, tell us a little bit about this deal. Yep. So Abby is paying $10 billion. That's the headline for Immunogen, a company that, as we mentioned in the intro, has been at this for quite some time, but has had a recent spate of success in developing medicines for cancer. The deal itself, $10 billion, it's a roughly 100% premium to where Immunogen had been trading. So Abby is paying twice the stock price, which is a premium that it feels like a yesteryear premium when biotech buyouts quite often were 100% premiums rather than what we've seen in recent years or in recent yeah months and years um, where that number is closer to 20 to 30%. But the the jewel of the acquisition is a an FDA approved cancer medicine uh, that Immunogen invented that treats advanced ovarian cancer. It was approved in 2022, um, an accelerated approval, and then confirmed the benefits that we saw. Uh, in the early studies with a trial presented just this fall um, at a medical conference. And so this is a medicine that prolongs survival. It's advanced ovarian cancer. When it was approved, it was the first new treatment for that indication in more than seven years. Um, And it is an antibody drug conjugate, which we spoke at some length about, um, I think, last month uh, with the ESMO conference, which is basically an, an old but resurgent biotech technology where you craft an antibody that will home in on a specific target on a tumor and you attach to it a load of toxic chemotherapies. And the notion is you can, you know, chemotherapy is a very powerful tool for killing tumors, but it's also an imprecise one. And so this kind of splits the difference between uh, monoclonal antibody technologies, which are precise, and chemotherapy, which is powerful. 
It's existed for a long time. It's a technology that has been, I think, refined in recent years such that it is coming into vogue in clinical practice. And so beyond you know the $10 billion price tag, which is obviously the most eye-catching thing, this is in many ways the latest affirmation of that progress of ADCs that we've seen following uh, Merck signing, I think, a $22 billion deal with Daiichi Sankyo earlier this year focused on ADCs. And then maybe the biggest thing, Pfizer acquiring a company called CGen, which is, was synonymous with the technology for many years, for more than $40 billion earlier in 2023. Yeah, you know, Immunogen is an interesting story because, you know, it, it's a, it's kind of an OG biotech company. It was formed in like 1980, 1981. So as you mentioned, Damien, uh, Elahair is, you know, was the first drug, sort of wholly owned drug that it uh, secured approval for. It, you know, took 40 years for that to happen. They actually had, uh, they had actually had worked with Roche uh, or Genentech, the Genentech division of Roche. On an, on an ADC called Kedsila, or maybe Kedsila, you know, I can't pronounce drug names, <laughs> uh, in breast cancer. And, and, and in that deal, that was a partnership in which Immunogen sort of contributed the, the, uh, the, the, the drug conjugate slash chemotherapy uh, side of that drug. And the antibody was an antibody that Genentech had developed. It was sort of modestly successful and, you know, it was technically not an Immunogen drug. So this drug, Elahair, was there, there first. So, you know, Persistence pays off over forty years. I mean, the other kind of interesting thing, uh, maybe to, to to mention about Immunogen and Elahair is that um, this was not a sort of it was kind of a rough or bumpy road to approval because originally when they had tested this drug in ovarian cancer patients, they had kind of looked at a broad swath of patients. Um, this is an antibody. The antibody component of this drug. Uh, uh, target cells that express uh, a protein called folate receptor alpha. Um, when they first looked, they were looking at a sort of a broader swath of ovarian case, cancer patients. Um, the drug didn't really work very well, and then they sort of realized that they should focus more on on cells that have high, express high levels of this folate receptor alpha, and that's where that's where Immunogen found success. I think it's worth kind of looking at the AbbVie angle of this as well. I mean, obviously, one of the largest drug companies in the world. Um, but one who's in this moment, whose future is maybe a little more uncertain than it has been in recent years. So AbbVie obviously synonymous with Humira, um, an autoimmune drug familiar to anyone who's watched television in the last 15 <laughs> years, um, that they've made billions and billions of dollars from somewhat controversially. But finally, uh, in the last year, Humira is facing biosimilar competition, basically generic competition from other agents that work similarly. Um, and at the same time, Imbruvica, which is a cancer medicine that AbbVie paid upwards of $20 billion for a 50% stake in, and probably they've made that money back by now. But anyway, that drug is going to be among the first 10 medicines up for Medicare negotiation when that also controversial program kicks in in a couple of years. And so, you know, the major cash cows of AbbVie's recent history are under serious threat. Humira's sales have already eroded pretty substantially um, in that context. So this deal, AbbVie, you know, buying Immunogen, but also betting really on the future of ADCs, represents, I think, we're watching them kind of going on offense for, for the losses that they are probably going to incur. And I've seen, you know, analyst estimates that that Elahair, the, the Immunogen drug, could top out at about $2 billion a year in sales, which, you know, that in itself, I mean, that's a respectable amount of money. Obviously, it's a huge amount of money. Um, but in like biotech blockbuster terms is relatively small. But Immunogen also has uh, a pipeline of ADC treatments. And the way AbbVie framed this, at least in their comments around announcing the deal, is that this is very much part of a broader strategy to establish a larger oncology presence for the future. 
Yeah. So Damien, and you know, if you look at kind of uh, Abby's deal history, as you mentioned, you know, the pharmacyclics deal, that was uh, 2015, 21 billion. And obviously they did in 2019, they did the huge Allergan deal, 60 billion. So, you know, this is a $10 billion deal and they haven't really done, uh, you know, in, in the last, you know, since then, they haven't really done a lot of uh, kind of significant M&A. So um, this is a little bit of departure for them. The the timing of this deal, I, I can't help but think about, I mean, $10 billion towards a plethora of ADC drug candidates, which, you know, Damien, as you mentioned, we've been talking about, you know, on the podcast, um, particularly around ESMO. ADCs are really a, a exciting field of cancer drug development that's just gaining a lot of attention at this time when I think and I hear from investors that, you know, the oncology space is kind of shifting. Um, the irony of this deal happening the same week that there has been a shakeup with the CAR-T world is not lost on me, for one. Um, earlier this week, we had the FDA come out and say that they are investigating, I think it was 19 cases that um, CAR-Ts, this once like very promising, very hyped, very um, active area of M&A in the drug world, um, that they were looking into cases that CAR-T actually in some cases could uh, lead to new cancer uh, rather than, you know, solely knocking out all cancer. Damien, can you tell us a little bit more about like what the FDA um, is looking into? And I mean, do we have any sense of like why the FDA is sounding the alarm now on CAR-T? You know, that remains a little unclear. And honestly, the level of detail the agency provided doesn't go much further than the description that you uh, just made, other than that there were this small number of cases uh, in which basically yet yeah, new blood cancers were formed after the treatment with CAR-T of patients with blood cancers, because that's what uh, the approved CAR-T medicines are approved to treat. Now, the FDA made mention of you know possible issues with the way that CAR-T is done. It involves genetic engineering of a patient's own immune cells, and companies use viruses to do that. And so there's some concern that these viral vectors might be, you know, I don't, I don't want to say misbehaving, but might be imprecise such that they are seeding malignancies elsewhere. But there's no, or at least there was no provided strong evidence for that. It was more of a concern. And so obviously this came as a surprise to me, least relevantly, but a lot of people. But it also came to a surprise to CAR-T experts who, um, you know, our colleagues wrote a story and others have covered this, talking to some of the luminaries in the field, asking, what do you think is going on here? And it sounds like they're all exchanging emails with each other, basically proffering theories, but with no no one really having confidence as to what this issue is. And many people suggesting that this could be a transient safety issue that upon investigation turns out to be not as much of a concern as one might assume if you just saw the headline, FDA investigates whether cancer drug causes cancer, which admittedly is quite alarming, but there might not be as much of a there there. But I do think it's kind of a wait and see situation at this point. And it's worth noting that in the in its announcement, the FDA did note that, you know, the, the benefit of CAR-T therapy as a cancer treatment still outweighs the risks that, you know, that are involved, including this potential for, you know, for sort of other secondary cancers. So, uh, you know, you got to, right, you know, we're treating patients who have cancer, obviously. So um, you have to sort of 
keep that in mind in that perspective. I thought what was interesting about the reaction to the announcement was that um, sort of the biggest, on, for at least from a stock perspective, um, the companies that went down the most were companies that are developing CAR T therapies for uh, for autoimmune diseases. Uh, you know, because that's sort of a burgeoning, interesting area of R and D. A lot of companies are pursuing this. It's it's essentially the same idea where you can engineer a T cell to go to go after a target that causes autoimmune diseases, like let's say like lupus, for instance. Instead, you know, these these are diseases that right now are treated by antibodies. Uh, you know, chronically. Uh, so this idea is that maybe you can use a CAR T therapy to to actually treat and knock out this autoimmune disease in people. Um, you know, the question there is when we're thinking about benefit and risk, um, obviously the benefit risk equation for an autoimmune disease is a lot different than it is for cancer, right? So yeah. if there is this, if there is this secondary cancer risk or cancer risk with these CAR T therapies, that, you know, that actually could, you know, that could really negatively impact the development of, of CAR T therapy for autoimmune diseases. It's kind of a, um, another blow to this CAR T field, which it feels like, I mean, a lot of people are, the the excitement is is waning a little bit. I mean, this is a field that over the next, or sorry, the last couple of years has struggled with commercial launches of products. You know, we, we have colleagues who have covered extensively the, the difficulty of making these products and getting them to cancer patients, because right now, they are, you know, highly specialized to each patient. They're based on, you know, each patient's own, um, you know, cellular, you know, biological makeup. Um, and the idea, the promise of, you know, an off-the-shelf CAR T that can simply be, you know, used for anyone remains rather elusive. CAR T as a whole, yeah, is a field that I, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know that there's a a ton of optimism in the air right now around this field. It's worth noting that like one of the things that our colleagues pointed out in some of their coverage was that this may be an opportunity where some companies that are using things like CRISPR and other genetic editing tools to actually create CAR T treatments that may theoretically, you know, be able to hit those targets more specifically, given the the genetic it, editing tools that are being leveraged, could actually, um, you know, kind of swoop in with a benefit. CRISPR Therapeutics is doing that. Uh, Tessera Therapeutics, the flagship pioneering startup, is you know using its own genetic editing tools in CAR T drug development. So we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, I mean, it's worth, you know, in the relatively short history of CAR-T, relative to ADCs, at least, which have been around, as we noted, for upward of four decades, we've been kind of on this roller coaster of expectation. I remember in the early days of, for example, Kite Pharma or Juno Therapeutics, both of which have since been acquired, the notion of expanding from cancer to autoimmune disease was present back then. And I remember listening to those executives making these bold promises that CAR-T would supplant Humira. And those kind of came to ground with an earlier safety issue, which was cytokine release syndrome, basically an immune response to CAR-T therapy, which led to some patient deaths in clinical trials. And I remember declarations back then, this is maybe 2016, that this space may not get off the ground or may not live up to the potential it seemed to have. 
that was, I don't want to say totally overcome, but, but you know, the medical system reacted to that such that CAR-T therapy was made safe and relatively predictable for people with these advanced cancers due to ways of dealing with the immune response. And then, you know, that gained traction to where CAR-T became a legitimate business in oncology, leading us to now with the current safety scare. And I take your point, Allison, that, you know, it it does suggest that other technologies might need to be employed to mitigate this if it's real. Likewise, the allogenic thing had a hype cycle of its own, which turned out to be more difficult than people thought. I guess what I figure is that the past of CAR-T has been kind of a roller coaster. This suggests that the future likely will be as well. But I don't imagine, just based on the really, really powerful results that some of these CAR-T therapies have had for patients with otherwise intreatable cancers. I can't imagine that it will go away or be supplanted in any way, but rather this just being the latest hiccup in a complicated story. Yeah. And we may learn a little bit more details about kind of exactly what the FDA is looking at uh, relatively soon because uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, announced recently that the FDA is holding an advisory panel meeting for its uh, drug Abecma, which is a CAR-T that targets BCMA for multiple myeloma. The, uh, Bristol has been trying to expand the use of that drug into earlier earlier lines of therapy. Uh, and uh, sort of unexpectedly, the FDA announced that they were going to hold an advisory panel meeting for that. Um, the date for that meeting has not been scheduled yet, but I imagine it's going to happen in, you know, in the next few months. And so, you know, that might be the opportunity where we sort of see exactly what the FDA is concerned about. So speaking of learning more details, we got more details this week, well, potentially more details, at least kind of a a self um, proclamation of sorts from the CRO that was working with Accelerin, the one of the few biotechs to go public this year, and um, up until I think about September, having a, a rather decent time of it. That is until they announced a kind of surprising uh, clinical trial failure. In the months since, there has been a searching of of answers for why this trial didn't turn out more positively, and Accelerin, it seems, you know, has kind of indicated that there might have been some issues in the way that the trial was run, which led this week to uh, the CRO that was working with Accelerin on this trial, putting forward a, a statement, an SCC filing, disputing basically Accelerin's uh, characterization of events and what happened with actually two clinical trials. Damien, what more can you tell us? Yeah, it's a mess. I mean, getting into the details, I feel like won't would be bad podcasting and would maybe kind of miss the what makes this story interesting in the broader context of biotech. But yes, as you said, Accelerin, one of the few IPO successes this year, had a setback. And, and the, the, the proximate news is that in the aftermath of their failed clinical trial in an autoimmune disease from September, which had wiped out a great deal of their IPO value, did the company come forward and say, without naming names, that they had spotted an issue with a third-party CRO that didn't necessarily, they didn't blame the earlier failure on that, but said that they found misdosing in an ongoing study, which was problematic because, you know, the ongoing study is where the value tied to their future is. And then, as you mentioned, that CEO came out and said, without getting into too many specifics either, that they just didn't approve of the characterization. And the stock went down further for Accelerant. I feel like what this story is an indicator of is just kind of, in microcosm, how 2023 has gone. There have been so few IPOs. There was so much, I don't want to say hope, but you know, ambition tied to the early ones of which Acceleron was one. They went public, 
uh, in the spring at a $2 billion valuation. And what we've seen here is, you know, I don't know whether the company's drug works. I'm not sure they know at this point either. Uh, but the execution, just plainly from the outside, has not gone well. The disclosure of the initial clinical results was a little sloppy at the time or a little messy at the time, I would say. Getting into a public tit for tat with your service providers does not exactly inspire confidence. And so it's just kind of a, a failure to launch in so many ways of this company in a way that. I don't know. It just doesn't feel like it bodes well necessarily for the crop of, of biotech companies queuing to go public. It doesn't inspire confidence that the next generation of these companies and these management teams are really equipped to execute on these things. Maybe that's an unfair extrapolation, but I do feel like that was the air around this story as it unfolded. Well, the old excuse for drugs not working is, is the you know better than expected placebo response. <laughs> and so now the new excuse appears to be uh, our CRO didn't do its job. I guess that's the the new excuse. And you know it's funny because you you mentioned Accelerant, and I won't I won't go into it any further. But uh, also this week we had uh, uh, results from a phase three study in Alzheimer's disease uh, run by a company called Biovi, tiny company uh, drug was kind of an old pass around old diabetes drug that they thought would work in Alzheimer's and probably never will. But um, I love that there was a really novel excuse for the failure of their phase two study in that they basically said similar things. They said that their clinical, they when they looked at the data uh, at certain clinical trial sites in, in a certain region of the country and in a certain demographic of patients, they were seeing all kinds of crazy stuff like placebo patients outperforming expectations and um, copy and pasted data and imaging and and, and forged signatures on patient consent forms, all kinds of weird stuff, um, which <laughs> caused them, you'll love this, caused them to throw out 80% of the patients that they enrolled in the study. Wow. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it was like, <laughs> you know, they didn't say where this was happening or they didn't say what demographic it was. But when you, if you actually looked at the clinical trial sites that they used for the study, you did see that there was a large group of study sites in Florida, uh, you know, which sort of matches what the, how the company <laughs> described it in the in the Miami area. So I, I think I imagine that I guess the demographic group that they're talking about would be uh, the Hispanic demographic group um, at clinical trial sites uh, around Miami. And there's no explanation of sort of why 15 different clinical trial sites would all have weird uh, anomalous data. Uh, but that's the excuse that BioV went with this week, uh, and the stock dropped like sixty percent. So obviously, no one's buying it. But uh, yeah, we're you know we should maybe keep a running catalog of of new and different excuses for clinical trial blowups. That feels like the biotech equivalent of the the Florida man bit. Like, yeah, Florida yes. man ruins, <laughs> destroys, yeah, yeah. or like apparently mucks Florida up man, clinical trial Apparently, sites. Florida man is now running <laughs> clinical trial sites throughout the Miami area. Oh, geez. So, Damien, you were really busy this week. Uh, you also wrote a story about uh, the job slump in the biotech sector. Tell us uh, what you found out. Yeah. So, working with uh, our colleague, Jonathan Wosen, uh, we were looking at, I mean, this is, you know, if you want to see some inside baseball, we and everyone else in this small world have written a multitude of stories on every angle we could think of, of biotech bad right now, whether it be stocks, whether it be 
financings, whatever metric you want to have of just kind of observing the thing that everybody already knows. But one thing we hadn't done, and I don't think we'd seen much of, is what does that mean for, especially people in early early in their careers, job candidates in, in the industry? Because we had seen and reported on during the sort of go-go days of uh, peak COVID-19, that the it had become basically a seller's market for anyone who worked in biotech. We'd heard these anecdotes of people having having four or five job offers at any time and being able to negotiate for you know great compensation packages or perhaps titles that were arguably a little inflated based upon a given candidate's experience and that the companies in question kind of felt they had no choice but to match those as if you're a venture-backed firm, every single day you're burning through money that you can't get back. And so we kind of knew about what the situation was like then and we were curious as to, well, what is it like now? And perhaps unsurprisingly, the answer is completely inverted. Um, The people who formerly had multitudes of job offers just sitting there, now we found cases of people early in their careers who had gone on dozens of interviews and found themselves still waiting to hear back and were struggling to find positions as we heard from recruiters and from hires that the the market had flipped. It had become uh, an employer-driven market rather than a workforce-driven one. And some of the data we got on that um, from a firm called Lightcast that keeps labor market analytics is that at the height of biotech, let's say early 2022, there were something like 19,000 bioscience job postings in the U.S., in October 2023, that number was down to 10,000, so roughly cut in half the actual supply of available positions. Um, the I don't want to say the upside, but it's it's always important to zoom out when talking about the trough that biotech has been in in recent years, which is to say that when you zoom out, things are not that bad. It's just that they were so perhaps irresponsibly and unrealistically good, in, in one way of speaking, for, for a while, that things look awful. And we, we heard from you know recruiters that business is still being done. And then you know that something we've heard all year long is that everybody's looking forward to 2024, whether it be company launches or financings, but in this case, hiring. Um, we heard from a lot of recruiters that they're seeing things being set in motion for next year and heard the same from venture capitalists as well. So it's just kind of an interesting snapshot of how the biotech slump affects people who who actually work in this industry and who are trying to build careers in this industry. And you know, because it has been such a breakneck turnaround, we heard from people who had colleagues or former classmates who were just you know one or two years ahead of them who entered the job market during the go-go period, and now they're here having this like diametrically opposed experience. But again, everyone expects things to at least somewhat normalize in the months to come. Now, Damien, I remember like the late 20 teens into early 2020s, you know, going around touring new offices of, of biotech startups in, in Kendall Square. And it was always a big deal. Like what what kind of amenities they had for employees? First, it was snacks. And then it was, you know, beer on <laughs> tap. And then it was kombucha on tap. Um, is there any danger of that going away? What will you what will we miss most? About the it amenities. does sound like the arms, the amenities arms race may have kind of reset when a lot of the companies offering those tours back then have either merged out of existence or completely liquidated. And so I think, you know, the ping pong table is a harbinger of a seller's market in labor. That mm. being said, we didn't get any indication that anybody was being recruited to, you know, work in an office in a dank basement somewhere in the distant exurbs of of Boston. I think, you know, that the the ecosystem that has existed for many years still does and goes through these ebbs and flows. But that being said, probably not as many luxury watches offered as signing bonuses as perhaps there were in 2022. 
It's good to know that mm. kombucha pong is not going away anytime soon. <laughs> and on that note, this is the end of another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you can come up with a new excuse for a drug trial failure. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 